Yo fam, did you know that we have a Facebook group? It's called the High Cost of Anonymity Podcast Facebook group. It's a mouthful, but that's where I post the video. I ask questions. I look to engage, answer any questions, and I'd love to see you there. Uh, So check us out. High Cost of Anonymity Podcast Facebook group. Uh, Give us a a follow or a like or a request, something like that. I'll see you. I'll let your boy. Enjoy the episode. This is Carmel Pelly, host of the Recovery Lifestyles podcast. I hope you enjoy her story. Love you. We're here. Yes, I'm here. <laughs> what do you know? Nice. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Preston, and I got a soon-to-be good friend, Car- uh, Carmel with the Recovery Lifestyles Instagram uh, account. We actually connected because of a hashtag, and uh, I wanted to have her on the podcast. So, uh, Carmel, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. So, my name's Carmel, and I run a community called Recovery Lifestyles. It's a community for men and women. Originally, it was just women, but now um, I have tons of men in my community, and As I've healed and evolved, I've been able to bring men in. And so, yeah, we're all about ending the stigma against addiction and any type of recovery and just raising awareness. That's awesome. I, uh, I, I love how you said that because that just means there's a story there as I uh, re- uh, recovered and healed that I was able to include men. So I, I love that. I think we were talking a bit offline and that is part of the, um, part of the messaging and part of the, the advocacy work that I find myself doing is how do I help people with a story? And naturally I kind of originally thought it would be recovery leaning, hence the high cost of anonymity and anonymity is often associated with 12 step, but um, with a wife that has struggled with mental health, uh, I work for a mental health hospital, realizing that there's so many people out there that have a, have a history, a story where they went through something, they got some help and now they're on the other side of that. And the amount of shame, guilt, embarrassment that has come with, whatever that looks like. And they are sitting on a superpower and most people don't even know it. And so I just want to have as many different people with as many different perspectives and experience that at least somebody will hear. They're listening to this podcast, like I hear uh, Carmel's uh, story and send them down whatever path you went. So I'm excited to get into it. Why don't you tell us, uh, um, kind of your origin story, how you grew up, how you ended up uh, getting into recovery, and we'll see where this goes. Yeah, for sure. So um, I was raised in a small town by some very young parents. Uh, my my mom had me when she was 18, and then um, my biological father, I actually never met until I was 14. So I was raised by another man until they got divorced. And, you know, I grew up in a party house. I think that's part of the early 80s story is that a lot of people grew up in party houses. That's just the way it was. (laughs) And I know my cousins and I, we used to steal drinks all the time. I mean, that was just right. That was the fun. And that was what the adults were doing. And so it was like a game for us. And did you um, did you ever take a big swig out of a beer can that had (laughs) cigarettes put out in it? (laughs) 
I can't remember doing that, but you know, later on in the story, I probably did that. <laughs> right. I did. Yeah. Mistakenly did that. And that was usually the morning after when I was cleaning up after my parents' party. Yes. You get the swig and you're like, Oh my God, cigarettes. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, I mean, then, you know, my, I was a competitive figure skater. I had, you know, from the outside looking in, I had a great growing up, right? Like I never lacked anything. Um, but then my parents got divorced. And when I was, I don't know, I think I was 13, we moved into a new home and the neighbors were drug dealers. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, uh, they sound interesting. Yeah. Most people would be like, oh, no, not in this neighborhood. And you're like, huh, what, what are they doing over there? Let's go hang out. Exactly. Right. <laughs> So, um, you know, I started smoking a little bit of marijuana and I really didn't like it. Um, I think my very first experience ever, I was over at their house and they had younger siblings that were my age. So they would hang out there and I would go to hang out with them and play with, you know, them. And I ended up trying marijuana and it just, it actually made me sick. I remember standing up and I smacked my head on the wall and gave myself a black eye. (laughs) (laughs) like that was the first experience right like you think I would have just said no from now on but I didn't yeah um and yeah when I was 14 I tried acid and I loved it there was just something about it you kind of backed in well I guess you did start out with a little bit of alcohol but those are those are some pretty uh pretty good hitters right there to start out uh with it 13 14 years old yeah I don't I don't know it was crazy like acid I just loved it I mean it made me feel good (laughs) something to do with chemicals apparently the natural route was not for me I need to go (laughs) more hardcore (laughs) sure um and so you know I kind of partied on and off but I was I was always pulled back by my figure skating and it was something I was really good at it was something that I felt grounded at and it was it was a community where I belonged right I felt like I belonged um But then when I was 17, I got pregnant with my first son and um, his dad was a drug addict and not a very good person. And so, yeah, I ended up giving birth to him five days after my 18th birthday and the father wasn't there um, when, when I went home to my parents and within three months, things just escalated and got really bad. So I moved to a new city. You know, I was already doing the geographical change without really understanding what I was doing at that age. Sure. And um, so I went six hours away to another city. And um, shortly after moving there, I was in a car accident where my son, he was 16 months old at the time, and he ended up in a coma and on life, life support. Wow. And I was 19 at the time. Yeah. And that was traumatic. I mean... You know, I wasn't, I would say, a drug addict at that time. I wasn't an addict, but I had experimented, and I had experimented with rougher things. Um, But that really did it. I mean, that was, I felt responsible for the accident um, because I was young, and I was the one driving the car. Mm. That was a really difficult journey. And um, the miracle is that my son did end up waking up from the coma and, He had a lot of disabilities and I had to learn how to parent a child with disabilities. And so my escape was I started working in nightclubs and that quickly escalated to where I found cocaine. And I mean, that was everything. I couldn't Mm. get enough of cocaine. And so this went on for a while. And as I made more money, 
um, as we do in the clubs and we make a lot of money. And I was with the wrong crowd, <laughs> like, and um, started dating the wrong men. And things just progressively got worse to the point where I was doing drugs every single day. Like I just, um, I would spend my days, whatever I could attain. And most of the time I was dating the drug dealer. So I had a lot of access and soon I hit a point where it was rock bottom. Um, My rock bottom there was when uh, my drug dealing boyfriend would give me drugs to take to the clubs to sell to the girls. And I would end Mm -hmm. up doing all the drugs. And so (laughs) (laughs) at least they wouldn't come after your head with that one. Usually if you're dating them, they give you a little bit of a pass. Well, for only a little bit of a while, right? Right. They're like, <laughs> you're like, dude, I'm giving you, costing me all this money. Quit taking my drugs. <laughs> I know. And it was so crazy. I can remember playing games with myself at that time where I would leave it at the club in my locker and come home. And it would be like three in the morning and I would be doing everything in my power not to drive back and go get it. Oh, like Lord. it was just insanity. Um, how, how old were you at this time? Uh, 22. Yeah. So, I mean, I did a lot of fun things. I dated a DJ from the UK and that was a blast. And I dated, um, I dated a lot of interesting people. I dated a, a, a man that owned a strip club. Well, he owned a f- several strip clubs and that was really what took me to my bottom, right? You know, the more power those types of atmosphere, the more messed up you really get. Right. Um, and again, I, I think I touched on it earlier, how, my issues with men right right away out of the gate as a child I felt even though I probably didn't know it at the time I felt abandoned right by my biological Mm -hmm. father then I was abandoned again by another father and so I formed relationships with really powerful controlling negative men right Mm. and that was my pattern um and so again I did a geographical change to get away from that situation because things got just horrific (laughs) I mean it was it was in in a lot of ways I mean I had a lot of fun at first living a high lifestyle was a blast I loved traveling Mm. I loved all the designer clothes I loved having the cars and the houses but it just got to the point where I was either going to kill myself or overdose and it and that would do it for me and or right right, something or one of these men were going to kill me themselves right like that's just where it got So I kind of um, jumped up in the middle of the night one night and took my son. And uh, to this day, I don't know, to this day. So I had a live-in nanny from the Philippines that used to take care of my son. And I think she was there to take care of me too. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) And I remember having to say goodbye to her. And I was like, we have to leave. And she knew. I mean, she barely spoke English, but she watched what was going on and she was okay with me leaving. And I mean, her losing her job to me potentially meant that she had to leave the country, right? And she just cared so much about us that she was okay with it. Um, And so I left again and went to a new city and started over. But as us addicts do, we find our people quickly. And mm-hmm. again, they talk about the geographical change in the 12 step program. It, I'm a prime example that it does not work. <laughs> I always think about that, um, you know, cause there's so many parallels, but even when people say hanging right. with the wrong people, well, in my, in my view, I was hanging with the right people. Yes. They were there to get me, you know, or those people are bad influences on the kid. I'm like, well, no, you're, you're, 
Like I was the bad influence, <laughs> even though, and it's just a, I guess it's a way to take responsibility, but I find, find our people and what I've also, I've done a couple of podcasts. My wife's been in recovery in Al-Anon for about 12 years. I've been doing, you know, all of our friends are, uh, you know, m- well, most of our friends are in recovery, but like we find each other, whether we're using or not. We, we, it's like, I heard Whitney Cummings talk about that on a podcast is every, we, we, we have this sixth sense where we're kind of, when we're meeting people, we're kind of testing, how sick are you? Do you have some codependency in there? Do we got some abandonment issues? We got some, yeah, you'll do. And if they're too normal, we're like, man, they're a drag. Let's get away from them. (laughs) Well, I think that as addicts, we're adrenaline junkies, right? We're always looking for the next high, whether it's excitement or it's, um, you know, drugs. Really? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what I was looking for. I loved the speed of life. I mean, yeah. um, and actually just to back up a minute, you know, dating the drug dealer and doing his drugs, you know, what really threw me for a loop was he gave me crystal meth instead of cocaine one time because he knew it would mess me up really bad. <laughs> I was about to say, cause it's cheaper. He was tired of you doing all your coke. So he'd give you some, some uh, meth. Exactly. He was, yeah. And that, that was a game changer. Yikes. I think I cut my hair off and dyed it black. <laughs> Actually I did, but. <laughs> so you, uh, so you moved to this new place and found your people and what happened? Well, and I had really been putting a lot of, um, I'd been making, I had was trying, I signed up to go back to school, which was an absolute disaster. I was in no mindset to be, you know, trying to graduate high school at that point in my life. And also coming from living a high life to all of a sudden you're like yeah. living in a regular apartment and going to school. Yeah. I mean, ugh, that was, that was hard. And yeah. Um, yeah, I found my people and I, one night my son was being babysat by these really amazing people who had kind of started in a way taking care of us. They were just really awesome people. I mean, she was a doctor, he was a lawyer, like just total angels, right? That just dropped into our lives. Sure. And I did too much drugs and could not pick my son up. And I had to tell her why. And so, Mm. you know, they had come from a total different lifestyle. They had children the same age as me, but, you know, living very different. And so, you know, she, it was one of the first people that was like, you know, you need to get help. We need to get you help. We, you know, gave me all of these um, stipulations and, and there was a threat there that I would lose my son if I didn't get it together. Mm. Um, so anyway, I should back up before that happens. Um, finding my, going back to finding my people. So Mm -hmm. in the clubs that I was working in, you have to get a security clearance done to be able to work in them. And, uh, so a week before this had happened where I couldn't pick my son up, I actually had went to the police station to get a security clearance and was mm. arrested for a warrant <laughs> oh. that I didn't even know I had. Right. But because of the people I was hanging out with, uh, my house in the former city had been watched. My cars were watched, right? I was, I was really with the wrong people. And sure. uh, I had no clue. <laughs> so anyway. Um... Well, that's a nice surprise. Surprise. You're going to well, How hilarious is that, right? It's like I willingly walked in the police station, was there to get a security clearance and was arrested. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So um, 
the reason I'm telling that story is because when I was being released, this man sat beside me and he started kind of talking to me. And at that time in my life, I really felt like I was better than everybody else around me, especially somebody that looked a certain way. And it had been the lifestyle I'd been living. And I was like kind of annoyed. And I was like, why is he talking to me? Finally, I started talking to him a little bit, you know, throwing him a bone here and there. And he saw right through me. And when I got up to leave, he gave me a piece of paper with a phone number on it. And he said, when you're, when you're ready to get clean, call this number. Right. So fast forward to the story I told about how I couldn't pick up my son. I found that piece of paper and I called the number because I was desperate. And a woman actually, Uh he sent a woman to come to my home, pick me up and took me to my first meeting. And I was almost 24 at that time. Yeah, there's. I've heard a bunch of stories. You hang around the rooms enough and you hear stories of people saying, when you're ready, here's a number. They call the number and they get brought to a you know a, a meeting. And uh, yeah, I wow. Know. And then you uh, walk in the meeting and you're like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's also funny too when you hear people talk about it is like how much you know, they don't know. They go, is it, uh, is it a cop spot? Is it more drugs? Is it you know, like, and, you know, they even think about the worst possible case scenarios and they just don't even care. They just go. So out of desperation, whether it's, you know, I think something good's going to happen or bad's going to happen. Anything's anything is better than what I've been experiencing and I'm just willing to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Desperate. So what, so what happened then? So the lady came, picked you up, which is a, uh, uh, for the listeners who are, are unaware or not in recovery, there's a, heavy uh, inference and maybe it's not a rule but they try to stay women with the women and men with the men uh, because we have a tendency to manipulate each other and so you know the amount of times that you know men roll up on the young girl and be like hey I'll help you and they have you know not great uh, 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 intentions so always connecting women with women as much as you possibly can. So good move on his part. Oh yeah. I mean, this man, I call him my angel and I just recently reconnected with him in the last little while. Oh wow! It's amazing. He's a very good person because as you're, you're talking about those kind of predators in the room, you know, I had, I had my days with those as well. (laughs) I got a lot of But Look, you know, I was just having, you know, cause, cause, I've talked to a number of people that were therapists and, and people in industry. And we talk, we always talk about the medically assisted treatment and all this and that. And as much as someone can say, you know, talking about methadone clinics and suboxone clinics, that there's people in there that are shady, that are up to no good, that are dealing drugs. You can say the same thing about 12 step groups. There's people in there that have bad intentions that are doing drugs that are preying on people. But you also, find people with amazing recoveries and large spiritual lives and whatever. And you're just like anything else, just like you're doing the geographical change, you're going to attract who you are. So if you're in there looking for trouble, you're going to find trouble. If you're in there looking for, for solution and spirituality and resource, you're going to find that too. And we need both. Uh, You know, we, we need everybody in there or or they wouldn't be there. So, um, so anyway, so the, the lady came to pick you up and you went to your first meeting and then what happened? Well, and actually this is kind of funny. I found out years later that it was not the first meeting I had ever been to. I actually had went to right. detox in the former city where I was living. And while I was 
and they came yeah, in. Yeah, well, I was in the detox yeah. for two days. I sat in a meeting, but well, I had no clue. Well, who, who the hell remembers <laughs> anything from detox? Come on. I, I remember. You're like, did, did that shit really happen or was I hallucinating? Well, again? my best friend at the time, she was trying to break me out of detox. I mean, she was panicking, right? Right. <laughs> but that was one of those crystal meth episodes. So, right. Anyway, back to uh, going to my first meeting. I just remember sitting there in this church and I did not grow up in a religious home. I had no idea about spirituality. And I remember sitting in this church and I was just like, what the heck is this? And looking at the people around me and thinking like, how did I end up in this place? Right? Like this is what's going to get me better. What I can see, because at that point in time in my life, uh, appearance and what people had was how I valued them. And I was like, nobody here has anything I want. If anything, they got to stop shopping at Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) Not judging, just saying. Not at all. (laughs) So, I mean, you can just tell that I I had a lot to learn. Um, But of course, but you know, something, something shifted within me and I was made to go back. I had to do this to get clean. I did not want to lose my child. I did actually want to get better. I knew I was a good person. I just didn't know it. I didn't know who I was yet. And I had had, you know, I'd had a lot of trouble and I'd really been in the wrong people. And I became, it was very easy for me to isolate. That was kind of what I did. If I wasn't at a meeting, I was isolating. And in the first couple Mm. of years, that is literally all I did was every single day I'd go to a nooner and then I would go to another meeting in the evening. And that was literally how I survived. And it was shitty. I mean, it was a hard, it was a hard road. It was not fun either. Um, I really put my time in and I had a hard time trusting people, but I just kept going and I kept going and things started to get better. Help me understand for you what it was like going to the meeting, being in these people, being in the rooms with these people that, uh, quote unquote, shopped at Walmart (laughs) too much and, um, you know, didn't look what you were like the people that you were used to hanging out with. But what kept you coming back? Was it desperation? Was it there's something tangible here and I just can't put my finger on it? What was Oh, Just so you know, I am that Walmart person now. (laughs) (laughs) I. More will be revealed. I am that I am that person now. Yeah. <laughs> All those 20-year-olds that come in now think that of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Touche. Um, I think it was the peace. I could see there was peace in people that were around me. I was very scared. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that I was operating in a space of freeze most of my life, you know, like flight and mm. flight or fight. I was operating in freeze. And yeah. I had so much anxiety that the only way I knew how to drown that anxiety was through drugs. And yeah. what soon happened is that the meetings would drown that anxiety. Even though I didn't understand mm-hmm. that it was a higher power, it was a spiritual thing happening. I just knew it was happening. Yeah. And I would leave and I'd have little bits of happiness. You know, you that the, the I, I'm always trying to, I always envision someone listening to this podcast that, is trying to understand a friend, a family themselves. They're seeking and asking questions. And I always think of, I'm so biased towards the value of group because if I could get you, if I hear you share something 
that I view as shameful or, or embarrassing or maybe even something that I didn't even know I was thinking. If I hear you say that, like it just gives me permission to go deep and to maybe go, you know what, maybe me too. But the other part is if you want to know how to be a plumber, you got to hang with plumbers. If you want to learn how to cut hair, you got to hang with hairstylists. So if you want to learn how to live a life without the use of drugs and alcohol, you got to go hang out with people that have done it. And, and although they may look different and it's these weird church basements and they're all from different backgrounds and religions, they do know something mm-hmm. that, and, and that's how to find a new way to live. And if you go enough, cause my story early on was very much like you, like I went to a meeting every day. I went to seven to 14 meetings a day for the, about the first four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I cut back, I cut back to five to seven. And so I just got so much value from being in those circles. And it literally, it taught me everything, how to go to work and how to go to school and how to, what you said, be a good person. I was, I was a good person. I had good morals, but what does that actually really look like in real life when my parents aren't looking over my shoulder? Um, so that's, I like how you said that there was a sense of peace there. I knew there was something there. And it had me coming back. What um, did you get into the steps and sponsorship and service? What did that look like for you those first couple? Oh of years? yeah, well I'm I'm not a very good follower. I like to lead the way. I like to recreate things, including including the program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you probably started off with working the steps by uh, off the wall when you read them off the uh, off the little poster <laughs> there. You're like, oh, I'm already done with this. I don't know why you are taking so long. <laughs> yes, that was me. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I right think on. we need to reword this, change it up a bit, because that's that's just sure. not cool. Yeah. So I had yeah. to wrestle with that for a while. My very first sponsor, she actually, um, she took me to church. And that was cool. You know, that I, I would walk away from that on Sunday with a lot of peace. And I wanted to go back. Actually, I think it was Saturday nights. Mm. And, and that was cool, but I didn't get it, you know. Right. Um, that kind of set me, you know, on this self-discovery journey. But working the steps were a big, a big part of my recovery. It still is to this day. And mm-hmm. in the beginning, I think that, again, I really didn't get it. I think it's something that we evolve with. I think as we become, our right. eyes are open spiritually, that it goes deeper and you mm-hmm. evolve. And at first you're kind of like, well, how is this even going to help me? Okay, let's just do it. You know? Yeah. Step one, definitely power, powerless. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not a, that's a given. Um, that's an easy one to get over. But I think something else in my early recovery is that I had a few relapses. And every time I'd relapse, it got harder. It was like the shame yeah. was more, the guilt was unbearable. I felt like I was going to die and I just never wanted to do again. It was kind of like that hot stove syndrome thing. And right. I can remember my very last relapse. I had over six months sober and that was a big deal. And I relapsed and I didn't even mean to relapse. I, um, I've battled for many years. I'm grateful to say that I don't anymore. Well, sometimes, but with money and um, I think money's going to solve my problems all the time. <laughs> For sure. And if it's not, I'd rather have it than exactly. not. So, you know, I battled with that for a long time and I put myself in a situation where I should not have when I was six months sober and it was for money. And um, 
I can just remember standing there one minute with all my, all my will, my own will, I will not snort that line of cocaine. And all of a sudden I'm standing there and I'm high and I'm like, Oh shit, what happened? And it was not even enjoyable. It was like literally as I was snorting it, the guilt and shame and the self-hatred was setting in. Mm. And I was like, I never want to feel that again. I, uh, that reminds me of something my sponsor would tell me all the time, which was, um, you know, it was really more around girls. It was guys talking around, you know, standing around talking about girls. And he just really pounded in my head to never say what you think you would do in a situation unless you're, unless you've been in the situation. And, and I guess maybe emphasizing the importance of sharing experience, strength and hope as opposed to opinion, because how easily one can sit and say, Oh, well, if I was in that situation, I would have done this or I wouldn't have done that. Um, you know, uh, only to be put, put ourselves in that situation and to respond totally different. Yeah. Um, than we ever expected. And then something like that, where you thought for sure, there's no chance in heck that I'm ever going to do that. And yet realizing for real, for real, how powerless you are against your thoughts, attitudes, behaviors, and situations. And boom, here we go again. Mm -hmm. Wondering how do we get here? Well, I think when we don't have a lot of self-esteem and really understand ourselves, we have a lot of self-importance. Our ego is kind of out of control. So it's easy to judge and be critical. That's interesting how you, yes. And that's interesting how you put that because one that has that, that's kind of the egomaniac with an inferiority complex is people that have a lot of self-importance and a big ego and they know everything is typically comes across as opposite of being insecure, but that's actually a survival skill and a coping mechanism that in order to cover up my insecurity, I come from a place of self-importance and ego and I know yeah. better. Oh, and uh, I operated in that from the time I was a child, right? I was sure. living a quite always, I was always able to create an abundant, lavish, whatever lifestyle. Everything looked good on the outside, but things were just a mess on the inside things that you weren't allowed to talk about, right? And so that was learned. And so I cr I quickly learned how to make myself look perfect and my surroundings look mm. perfect so nobody would worry that there was something maybe going on. Right. Yeah. And that is, that's a that's a hard one to change, right? I, I, was, about, I was about to say, because I think that's the other thing about that I want people to know and understand about the journey of recovery is although you know, the drugs and alcohol may be long gone, like those things still come up and they come up in just really insidious, disguised ways. In other words, at any given moment, I feel like a little boy and don't know what to do at any given moment. I could be putting an air of confidence on and don't even realize I'm doing it at any given moment. I could be backing myself into the corner, a corner under the guise of recovery spirituality etc and really i'm back into my i'm backing myself into a corner because i'm scared and i'm insecure and i don't know what to do and the only way out is to use yeah. and 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 i will do that today with 18 years sober yeah. uh, you know and and um yeah it, it's just so insidious 
that uh, the other thing I've experienced, and I'm I'm curious, you might you might be leading to this as well, is that sometimes at some point in my recovery, there were issues and defects and shortcomings that were not an issue, only to become issue issues later in my recovery. And how many people I judged for struggling with something, only to find out that six years later, I'm struggling with the exact same thing, and I'm asking them for help. Yeah. Well, but I, I mean, I think that's what the beauty of long-term recovery, what that brings, and it brings that awareness, yeah. right? We evolve, we we learn our stuff, and it is revealed in a time manner that God feels is appropriate. It's not in our control. Sure. And um, <laughs> I can't remember what I was going to say. Oh, you know, I think that's like we were speaking before we got on the call about, you know, the stigma that's attached to addiction and recovery and how we want to really break that. And right. part of my recovery journey was going into hiding, hiding from people that I was an addict, creating a whole new life, you know, being that perfect wife and mother and having a home and, um, running a business and doing all that. And the people that I work with and the people that were in my life currently had no idea of my past. Wow. And sitting on boards for charities where I am discussing and, and getting to decide where the money should go to help these people, yet I can relate to them and I can't even tell them. Right. Yeah, I br you bring up a good point, and I really wanted to get into this in the uh, in the conversation about this idea of anonymity and the misinterpretation. Uh, what I feel mistaking anonymity with privacy, or the shame and guilt, like this idea that, like what you said, like I've got it. Who I am is not enough i need to be someone else and then you layer on the shame oh. and the guilt and the hiding and how easily we say you know our life was chaotic our childhood was chaotic our using was chaotic only to recreate that chaos in our recovery um sometimes under the guise of of privacy and it's really this sense of uh this in aca they talk about the addiction to excitement and fear mm -hmm. of like you're sober being a quote unquote responsible, productive member of society, living a double life. I would assume creating a nice knot <laughs> in the gut uh, about is someone going to find out or just even the, the interplay in, internally about living a life of, of secrecy. Yeah, did I say, did I say um, too much? <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So what was the, tell me this, like how much time had you been sober and you said you moved somewhere else, so nobody knew you, so you had the ability to kind of recreate this person. How much time sober had you had, and what do you think? What was your underlying motivation under there? Do you think? Yeah, I well, I was around. It was like around my six, six, seven years sober, sober, and I just, I don't know. I think I was trying to prove my worth. I think that's what was mm. going on. If I could be really successful and hang with all the right people and look a certain way, then that somehow erased my, um, my doubt and my fear of who I was. It, it's a really crazy thing because I, it's good. I think that's, that's important. And I want to, um, yeah, I think it's important to hear. This. Yeah. And, and yet, um, 
yeah, Anis Nin has that that meme. I don't know how to quote it specifically, but how you know the the pain of hiding became more than the pain of not. Anyway, it's something to do with that. Yeah. And that's exactly it. The freedom has come in being who I am. The freedom is in being my authentic self and right. not having the shame because we are not born with shame. People put shame on us. That is, that is, we create, we create that. shame. That's a learned behavior. And sure. so when we choose not to carry that anymore and we choose to be honest with exactly who we are, there's such freedom in that. And that's exactly what I've been experiencing since I broke away from that. Now, to say that there was a few relationships um, that probably, you know, the relationships I don't even want in my life anyway, now that when I look at it, but there was a few relationships of people that I think were in shock. <laughs> They're like, what? <laughs> right. And how I did that is I wrote a book. I wrote, well, I wrote in an anthology. I wrote a chapter of my life. And so I had let people read it. And they were like, what? What's, what, what's, uh, what is that anthology? <laughs> You're going to laugh. It's called Come Out of Hiding and Shine. <laughs> <laughs> that is that a... Is that like a book that you you contributed to, or is that like a thing? What is yeah, that? Yeah, it's a book that I contributed to. So I wrote I wrote gotcha. the last chapter for the book, and okay. uh, <laughs> I was like, "Well, that's exactly the book I need to be in." <laughs> this is well. I was about to say this is a that th there's no coincidence that one that has a a way about her that wants to do everything different and unique and better chooses to go into hiding and then chooses a way to come out of the closet like that with a book and then just dropping it in people's lap. There's no, you're not, you're not fooling anybody here. This is exactly, this is exactly uh, how, what, like something you would come up with from, from the sound. <laughs> I have no idea why I'm this creative. <laughs> yeah. Right. They, and one of the, in one of the uh, books that I read, it says it's called fatally unique and terminally cool. I am I am terminal. My ego is it can get so out of control sometimes, and I think I'm so unique and, and clever, only to find out I'm not fooling anybody. No. <laughs> That's funny. So, so you came out in this book, and then you started telling people. How did that go down? Well, some I think you know, some people, probably family members, were like, "We don't even know what to do with this. <laughs> right. This is scary. <laughs> You're airing our laundry." <laughs> Um, you know, it's a hard, that's a hard process, but I feel like that was part of my spiritual journey as well. It was part of my healing yeah. to be able to do that. And maybe it wasn't done in the best manner, right? Where I just kind of dropped it yeah. on people and shocked them, but it was all I knew. Um, yeah. I know better now. And that's, again, I'm going to say, once you get into that long-term recovery, you just start to learn so much about yourself and your ways and your patterns and your habits. And a big thing for me this past year that I've been in therapy for is trauma and going back to the mm. initial trauma and having all these big, huge aha moments that, oh my gosh, I acted this way because of my trauma. And now yeah. I don't have to act that way because now I know when my yeah. body feels like this, when I feel sick or I feel like my head is 10 times bigger than it should be and I'm floating around, that means I'm detaching. 
and then I'm going to follow into right. my pattern. Sorry, I'm going a little deep there, but. Right. No, that's, well, that's what we talk about on here. The last couple of people that we, that I've had on here, every single one of them talk about trauma. I've actually been turned on to uh, ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunction, after 18 years in recovery. And I think I found that I, I literally had told my wife, I was like, you know, I've been through the steps so many times. I've helped a lot of people, but I, there's stuff in my background and my history that I don't know is there, but I know is there and I can't put my finger on. It. I'm going to hire a therapist to maybe go through my childhood. And then I found, I heard someone on a podcast, I found ACA and, and I actually did hire a therapist as well. And we do some EMDR therapy and it's all targeted at, you know, what did I interpret as trauma as a kid? And, and also navigating, and you mentioned it is, I am so, I want to be so conscious of my family in this. Um, when I talk about generational trauma and things that there's no doubt that my parents did the best they could with what they had, but like, how do you navigate this where it's a part of my story and I'm able to heal from it? Um, but not hurt other people then, in the process. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and then also, you know, uh, Carmel is getting, getting comfortable with the word trauma because I, I'm not sure how much detail you've got, uh, but like I didn't really have a crazy traumatic childhood. Like I think quite fondly, I did get spanked. I got yelled at. I got smacked. You know, uh, sometimes it may have been a little much. Sometimes I might might have deserved it. But I was an '80s baby, like you. Uh, that that's kind of how we rolled. My my mom was raised in a children's home. My dad's, uh, you know, my grandfather was military and heavy handed. And so, but but one of my therapists actually uh, friends came on and just said, everybody experiences trauma and it's left to the person on how they interpret the trauma. It doesn't mean that the parents are bad or whoever was involved in this was bad. It's just how do you interpret the trauma trauma and store, how is it stored in your body? And then lastly, then you get into generational trauma, which is like the epigenetic part of the past down. Like I was just thinking of like, your mom had you when you were 18. You had your first child at 17. Not a surprise. Your your dad wasn't around. You were around guys that were, not, you know, not the greatest in, in your words. Um, and how we recreate that which we rebel against because it's as if we really have no choice, even though we are railing against and, and um, rebelling against how we were raised, like we're going to do it somehow so differently. And then when you turn around and look, it's, it's almost like we totally repeat the same thing. It just <laughs> yeah, looks different. Exactly. Yeah. But it really you know? needs to have compassion. You know, I spent many years hating my mom and now I have compassion. Now I can see. And it's like, yeah, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I get it. I think well, and that ta- you know, and that takes work. I actually did a podcast this morning about the value it was on perfectionism, and I do not suffer from the traditional sense of perfectionism. My perfectionism looks different. I- I'm an underachiever. I set expectations really low, so you don't expect anything. I am messy. You know, I do all this stuff. My wife, on the other hand, she's the more traditional perfectionist. She's very detailed, and she's an overachiever, and she's organized, and all this kind of stuff. And and if I was not in the circles that we talk about this deeper, intimate background, defects, assets, questioning, if I wasn't in these circles, I would be living under a shroud of ignorance because I would think I'm not a perfectionist. 
you know, because I know that I know that I know that I'm not. And then all of a sudden you talk about it and I read this in the book and I'm like, hold on. I, I actually do that in there. Like, how else do people get that if it's not from vulnerable support groups, counseling therapy, being open to people and, and having these conversations. I, I, I just feel like we're so lucky to be able to have those out. Oh, for sure. And in the fact, actually the last couple of years, I've been going to um, codependency groups. Yeah, yeah. Coda. Is it Coda? Uh, not here. The one I go to, it's not called Coda, but maybe it is. Yeah. And I just don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the, uh, someone had said it really well, Whitney Cummings had mentioned that um, like the ACA, the Coda, the family groups of Al-Anon are uh, for like zero to when we started drinking and using. Cause in AA and NA and other 12 step fellowships, we say, you know, if you started using at 13, you're a 13 year old boy or girl and that you act like a 13 year old, which yeah. is true. But what about the zero to 13? What about all those behaviors passed down or interpreted that you can't just get rid of like you can alcohol and drugs? How do you deal with those? And that's a lot of times what happens later in, 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 in long term recovery is, you know, at some point when the drugs are long gone, um, you know, these other things come up and you, we have to look at our behavior and, and codependency is a huge one. Uh, self-worth and security, uh, you know, these really unhealthy behaviors under the umbrella of recovery years in sobriety. And you still have these real unhealthy relationships and behaviors just crazy. Yeah. I always say, I mean, I was put on this earth for some kind of insanity project because I went from drugs and alcohol to um, anorexia, to bulimia, to like severe OCD, to picking, to right, like every back to food. Um, and I finally can say that I'm in a space in my life now where I'm aware of what's going on. But it's that next level of going into into rooms like um, with other codependents and learning from that perspective, and then also starting to work through the trauma and going to therapy for that. And I'm unveiling those layers. And that's what's brought me to a place where I can easily slip into any of those types of behaviors. Oh, for sure. Um, That's why I tell people I'll use anything, anything to change the way I feel, even if it makes me feel worse. And a lot of times it has zero to do with drugs and alcohol anything to not feel my feelings and when there's trauma involved in the subconscious and all that kind of stuff you don't even know it's you don't even know where the angst is coming from you don't even know where the discomfort is coming there was from. a point in my you know, recovery where i was going to the acupuncturist so much that he was like why are you here today because <laughs> <laughs> i need to be here <laughs> you're like something i don't know move some energy around i don't know <laughs> Go I was on. like, just let me give you my eighty dollars for the session. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. You know, you're that's a that's how that's a high achievement to get a freaking acupuncturist who works straight cash. That's telling <laughs> you what? Why do you keep coming back? Did you 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 probably did you tell them how special you were and unique? <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> of course, right? He should already know that. Oh my like, god! You realize um, who you're working on? <laughs> right, right. So, um, so. Talk about a little bit about what you do now. I know you said you've written three books. You manage your, um, uh, you're in the process of writing a memoir. You manage your your uh, Instagram community. I, actually, um, I forgot to tell you, I'm also studying theology right now. 
Right on. Good for you. So I guess let's let's go that direction. So you told me offline you found uh, you you found the 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 bug through uh, Christianity, um, uh, seemingly through the 12 steps. But when did that journey? Yeah, that's only been the last three years. Um, I started in the new age world, self-development, went to new age. Um, Definitely. I am your number one person to recruit from a cult for a cult a cult <laughs> i yeah, will sign right up <laughs> yeah uh i i went through all these different types of healing modalities um i used to go to retreats. i would go to sedona arizona and do these crazy shamanic mm. retreats um yeah. i was a huge wayne dyer follower during virtue before she became a christian um just you know the furthest most out there i used to do i was into everything and um just always seeking the spiritual high. I did Buddhism. Um, I would go on meditation retreats. I went on a cruise, a spiritual cruise one time and was doing the craziest things like in the Bahamas and Cayman Islands. And I mean, they should really make a movie out of this stuff. Some of things. <laughs> it's out. You would, you would have absolutely, you should have been in that, uh, what's the, that Netflix documentary with the, the people that went to Washington or Oregon or something. Oh, did you see it Winko. recently? With, no, 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 it wasn't Waco. It's the one where uh, the uh, the Osage or they're all wearing uh, orange and they go up there and buy this area and they start bringing in homeless people and they're going to have this like they have a guru. <laughs> you should I'll think about it in a minute. Yeah, that would have been right up. your. Oh, alley. yeah, I did all that stuff, you know, yeah. and, and the funny thing is, is that I my very first sponsor took me to church. And yeah that's where it began. And I don't know why I didn't get it at that time. I wasn't ready. It wasn't my time. And so I went on this whole trek, this whole spiritual journey. I studied so many, I studied everything. I don't know if you're that kind of addict as well, that um, you, you study everything. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I, every book in the spiritual section or the new age section, I have read and more likely I have gone on that person's retreat why? Because because you, you want to know everything. If you're going to do it, you would just want to know everything um, there is to know about it. Peace. Yeah, true that. Yeah, I was seeking. I was seeking that spiritual high, and I could attain that at times, but it never lasts. Yeah. And it it wasn't right. until um, my son, he was going to this really cool progressive church, um, Bible based church, but really cool, and. Um, he was bugging me and bugging me and wanted us, my husband and I to come with him. And finally I did. And I mean, for the first several Sundays, I'd sit up and like, oh man, it was bad. I would be like criticizing what the pastor was saying and being like, this guy's a joke. <laughs> and like, right. Um, and then three years ago, I, this guy, Martin Smith, you'll have to look him up. He is, he's a musician from the UK and he comes and he prophesies over people. And he, when he plays, uh, it's supposed to carry the the spirit, the Holy spirit. And I just remember sitting in the, the church and I just had this crazy, crazy experience. And ever since then, I was like, there's mm-hmm. no turning back, which is really funny because when you get baptized, they give you a t-shirt that says no turning back. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, funny. So, I just developed this deep hunger for Christ. Um, I'm no longer interested 
or want to even participate in any of those other types of uh, healings. And this is my journey, right? Everyone has their own journey. And I just really, I mean, I couldn't, I could never imagine studying the Bible. Like if you told me 10 years ago, you're going to study the Bible. I'd be like laughing at you because I used to make fun of people who went to church. (laughs) I was, I'm the least likely person to right be walking down that road. And here I am. And it's been the most fulfilling. And what I can say is that these past three years, I've had this um, steadfast peace. And everything Mm. in my life gets better and better and better. And even going through the journey that I'm going on now, where I'm going deep into my trauma from my childhood, deep into my trauma from my experiences, um, when I was a drug addict, that there is still that peace there. And I don't have to sit in it. It's just really amazing. And it's not something that I can convince anyone of. It's like, you just have to have the experience to understand it. And it's never gone away. You know, that's the big thing is it's never gone away. Do your uh, people at church know you're recovering drug addict? They do. Our church actually has a, this is so funny. Our church seems to attract my type. (laughs) There is. Yeah, there's so many people. So I always went to Cocaine Anonymous, and there is, like, so many people walking around my church that you, I mean, you would not recognize them because there's something about being washed in the Holy Spirit that you just, your appearance really does change, and you become almost softer looking. I don't know, but it's so funny. Every time I run into someone, I'm like, what is up with this church? We just attract everybody, like, (laughs) and so our church actually holds, um, uh, 12 step meetings every Thursday. Is it uh celebrate recovery 12 step? Is it just open AA meetings or yeah, what, what so is it's it? Just like celebrate, but it's um, this, yeah. the guy, him and his wife that run them. I actually knew him from cocaine anonymous <laughs> and they yeah. run it. And so they've kind of created their own. It's based on celebrate, but it's called, it's called care. Yeah. 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 Cool. You know, I think that's one thing, uh, call it, it's definitely, I've been in my own uh, evolution spiritually where at one point I couldn't even, uh, I couldn't hear the word Jesus, much less the word God without my stomach turning. I had a real version. Um, (laughs) If it even, if it even resembled that, that was one of the reasons why I didn't get into AA early on. I went through Narcotics Anonymous because the AA book was too, I mean, just the verbiage was so Christian and I just didn't, I had a hard time. I mean, when you know the fellowship, the fellowship is not religious based, but that the way of writing was, it reminded me too much of Christianity and I just couldn't even fathom it. And then now, um, I feel like I've come so far in my own spiritual journey that I'm able to, uh, I do not consider myself a Christian, uh, but like I've jumped on a couple, uh, you know, church things. I had a lady on here from celebrate that had a lot, got a lot from celebrate, even to be able to hear your message, like the ability to be able to take the similarities and the good from so many places. I think that's a real gift. And, And then also, who am I to say what um, type of spirituality or what, who am I to say how you should hear the message? Who am I to say how God is going to get to you? Who am I to say that your way is wrong in my way? I have no freaking clue. You know, you mentioned Wayne Dyer. He had talked about uh, 
I've been a couple, I've, I've been on them in a while, a while in the past, but I've kind of listened to a few things, but even just down to this, um, yeah, maybe Deepak Chopra had said it, but, uh, you know, quantum physics is not only crazier than you think, it's crazier than you can think, which covers your scientific people, but just religion and spirituality, it's crazier than one can even fathom. So who's to say that, who's to say that I, that I should, that I know how you get there. I just don't know. And there's people listening to this that need to hear your message to get to the you know, brand of religion. Yeah. You're and in. I think that's and the thing of, that I accept everybody for exactly where they're you know? at. I know where I personally want to be. Um, and I mean, this is a 15 year journey, like 12 years I spent with, if you mention the name Jesus, I would twitch, right? I would like literally. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I it was, yes. un, it was just, it I couldn't help. I couldn't help it. It was, subconscious my stomach would turn i couldn't hear yep. anything you yep. said and i would need to and it was like i would need out. to like fight with people yeah. and prove them wrong and argue with them and i mean now oh my gosh i mean if you're gonna come to christianity it's because you're gonna see in me his light and you're gonna want it it's not gonna be me using my words yeah. to convince you it's gonna be him leading it yeah. and we all come to that time or we don't at different times and it's not and you're exactly right it's not for me to say um, and I think that's what's really beautiful about somebody like me yeah. actually you know being where I am now is that trust me I know what it's like to be so against it and I also know what it's like to explore the new age world and to explore different religions and you know well like what, what do you mean by the, the new, new age, age world? world what is he that he speaks of all um gotcha yeah like energy universe More like a universal that sort of thing i think wicked even thinking. falls under there yeah. um shamanism those sort of things and Absolutely are you calling not. your church new age is that what you keep referring <laughs> to or not. is that or, i got you okay to come back Gotcha. Okay. But, just, but, just checking. I didn't I know if it was some those. new thing that I didn't know about. So yeah. I went to a I went to a church once that had yeah Oprah, yeah fair enough. Muhammad, you know I'm uh, not Muhammad think, Ali, but I'm trying to think. Anyway, hanging on their walls. <laughs> well, you know, I think that there is something to be said for, um, yeah, there's something to be said for a broader sense of call it Christianity, spirituality, whatever, um, that I just think in openness, I think of like my job for people that I work with is um, to fan the flame of desire, to fan the seeking and to help get them towards the path that, that they are being led to. And if that is a new age spirituality, if that's deep into science or if that is deep into a, a, a Christian or some other religion, my job is to fan them in that direction so they can be their their thirst for what it is they're looking for can be quenched. And I am not it is not my job to tell you it's right or wrong. And I think, too, the other thing is when we get when we can talk on 
the basis of what we can agree on, the spiritual principles that are consistent through all religions or through all spiritual work or whatever, magically we can get along. But the moment we start talking and debating about who said what and where they came from, all of a sudden we create separation and we can no longer hear what each other said, say, and if I want to help people and fan the flame and I want to help people get into treatment and recovery and counsel. I, I'm not drawing hard lines yeah. in the sand. And I think, you know, the 12 right steps are about do that. believing in a power yeah. greater than ourselves, right? And that all starts somewhere. I mean, I sat in rooms where right. people would say the light bulb was their higher right. power. And even then, I knew that was kind of out there. But I put my phone on do not disturb and still something's happening. <laughs> Yeah, no big deal. It, 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 uh, you're back on, so it's no big deal. And, and if sometimes the audio is not perfect, which is no big deal. Tell me, um, so tell me some of the things that, or, or let, let's go back to that anonymity conversation when you were hiding out and didn't want to tell anybody. One of the arguments that I make is our experience is our superpower. That if you are in a group of people, and I don't care if it's church, if it's a corporation, if it's a school, I don't care where it is. If you ask people, raise your hand if you know someone that has struggled with drug and alcohol addiction or raise your hand if you know someone that struggled with mental health, the entire room raises their hand. And what I mean by the high cost, there is a high cost to our community that if we don't learn how to share our experience, strength, and hope, whether it's, you know, mental health, addiction, whatever, there is such a high cost to our community because they don't know that they can reach out to you for help. They don't know that you've got experience with something like divorce or, or, or raising a child with disability if we don't share that. So tell me a little bit about, um, maybe how you got comfortable sharing. I know you came out in your book, but what are some things that you do to help people know that, hey, by the way, I've got this experience. If you need some help um, that, that you've learned over the years to be a, on how you use that as a superpower and how to be present yourself as a resource. Yeah. So people oh, at least have I the mean, door that is open a big journey. to asking. That is a big, big journey. Um, it was about four years ago when I made the decision that, like I said before, where that pain of hiding became greater than the pain of actually speaking my truth and being my authentic self. And a lot of that had to do with shame. I didn't want to shame my family. I didn't want to shame, you know, the people who knew me. Um, There was just so much garbage that I had not dealt with. And so it did not, it would, it did not enable me to be able to be out there. Um, And so I had to, it was a long process. I mean, yes, I started writing a book, but while I was writing that book, I was doing it with somebody who literally specialized and had done this herself. And so kind of coached me through the process of going through that because every time you'd write a sentence of truth, right? All of a sudden my body's reacting, my anxiety's going, all the naysayers in your mind are going crazy, right? All those messages that you've chosen, you know, to listen to start repeating themselves. And it's really learning to work through that And then also not putting yourself on such a big scale where 
I'm going to do this and it has to affect a million people. Otherwise it's not worth it. And right. Putting those expectations out there being that if I touch one person, that's all that matters. And a lot of times it only takes that one person that kind of gives you that confidence, you know, that says, thank you. Um, so yeah, fast forward to now, yeah. I am, I'm working on another level, obviously by writing a memoir of being out there, being authentic, being who I am, not hiding who I was. And I think the more I speak it, the easier it gets. The more I write it, the easier it gets. And it's still not hard. Mm. You can write a piece and be tell your truth and still have anxiety when you push the button and want to go back and erase it. <laughs> I mean, I think this is just a human experience that we're sure. all having. And um, it's normal to feel that way. So you have to almost like get used to feeling that way. And as you do, it lessens right? It's like retraining your brain, retraining your body to react in a different way. And then looking at the good that is coming from it. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Right. I also want to point out too, which you've mentioned it in and, and, and through here is the value of support mentors, support groups, and people that are helping you as you work through this, because I always want to try, I always want to draw a real clear line between sharing the mess, dumping on people, sharing your background in a way to be a victim. So people will take care of you and sharing solution and sharing your back past and and background as a resource. For example, Um, I don't know if you have any kind of phrasing, but one phrasing that I teach a lot of people about is, and I kind of developed it over the years, but I break my anonymity as much as possible and as early as possible. And it's a real easy phrase. It's, it's, hey, by the way, if you know someone struggling with mental health and addiction, uh, I want you to know that I have a lot of uh, experience in that area and I can help them. So if they need help, I want you to know that you can reach out to me or give them my number. Does that make sense? And they go, oh, yeah. And sometimes they go, oh, my God, me too. Or, oh, my God, I know someone. Or, oh my. But most of the time they go, yeah. oh, that's very nice. And then I roll right into whatever we're doing. Right. And it's, it's like a it's like an impassing. It's like a, I've got this experience. And, oh, by the way, would you pass the salt? Because what I want to do you know, in, in your book, they talk about be a fisher of men, right? We're putting the, we're, we want to cast the hook out there. We want to say, you know, hey, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? We don't want to necessarily <laughs> say, are you thirsty? No, are you sure you're thirsty? And try to shove water down someone's throat. We want to, we want to cast. And, and that's the thing. So many people, they either won't, take you up right away or it won't resonate right away, but they circle back days, weeks, months later and say, Hey, remember that thing you said? Can I talk to you about that? And I feel like that is the best way to, to, to share and break our anonymity and to let people know that we, you don't have to go in to say I was a freaking meth head and I got pregnant and I did this and I did, you don't have to do all that. You just have to say, Hey, I've got experience. If you know someone, somebody that needs help, they can, they can reach out to me. Um, do you have any kind of ways like that or, or well, I'm gonna, you develop I'm gonna just that share you feel like would be helpful help for the that. listeners? So um, and- I find as I've become, uh, like when I'm in a spiritually yeah. fit space and I am, I'm living my truth, people like automatically that. open up to me. 
Um, for example, yesterday I went to the grocery store and this young yeah. girl, she's at the till and she's like, oh, who's the vegan in your house? Because I, that's me. And even though I live with a couple of carnivores <laughs> yeah. and I was like, oh yeah. And we start talking and she right away <laughs> says, yeah, I've been looking at it because I have mental health issues. Right. She automatically, because I'm living my program, yeah. I'm spiritually fit. She automatically senses that there's something within her that sees something in me and senses that it's okay for her to say that to me. And I feel like that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, yeah. Besides the obvious, you know, I have yep, all of my true. social media accounts. I'm open about it. And so, yeah, I do get a lot of people that come to me in private. I get sometimes too many, but, you know, several messages from people who you would not expect yeah. were dealing with things, but they feel comfortable coming to me because they know who I am today. But I also am open about who I was. And that opens yeah. the door. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of plays to this idea of attraction rather than promotion. Um, that when we, just as much as we can laugh and joke about we attract who we are, whether it's attract sickness or attract the other drug dealers or users, we can also attract people that are either looking for help or they would say something like, I don't know what it is, uh, uh, Carmel, but I, I need to tell this to you. And that's kind of part of the even even when you're talking about the people in your church and how their face softens the amount of times um you know, my sponsor would always say, if you got to convince me that you're changing, you haven't changed. He said something will happen within you and people will say, Preston, have you changed? Yeah. And you're like, what are they talking about? And that's when, you know, you have changed and you have become in your words, um, uh, spiritually, yeah. what'd you call it? My spiritual foundation or spiritually fit that you can see that it's a sensing. And I, and I really like, uh, like that. Let's shift gears a little bit. And I don't know how, if there's even anything here or how comfortable you are, but can you talk about your family uh, life and, and how recovery has played a part or spirituality has played a part in your family and uh, whether it's with your spouse or, or kid, um, is there anything that y'all do as a family that you really try to make? Uh, um, yeah. Just, just the, the through line of recovery and spirituality through your family oh, and how it sure. affects you behind um, closed doors you know, when nobody's yeah, looking. I, our family, I would say, is is quite spiritually fit. Spirituality, God is number one in our home, and that's how we choose to live. And we've we've played it out many times where we did not put God number one, and things turn into a disaster quite quickly. I mean, irritability and anger and those sort of things, especially in this time of COVID, right, where we're all kind of stuck together. And um, yeah. so, I mean, practices. I mean, we go to church. Um, we pray as a family, we read spiritual books as a family, and we always have music on, always positive music going, flowing through the house. And I feel like that really sets the tone. Nice. That's nice. I think that's one of the things, and, and often when I talk, talk in meetings or, or um, the areas in which I struggle is not in public. It's not with my friends and acquaintances and it's behind closed doors when nobody's looking. It's the edge. It's the restless irritable uh, irritability and discontent that I experience at any given moment. And I will 
I will again back myself into a corner where it's me against them and forgetting that, um, you know, that we're on the same team. My, my wife is, and I've benefited quite a bit from uh, couples meetings. Um, we're big fans of, of, of couples counseling and, and things that we do together to, to both in our own way, be able to remember that we are on the same team and that I think the other benefit, uh, and it sounds like you might have that with the, with the church bit. Um, but having a foundation in which her and I agree on, um, because we can all, no matter who we, no matter who we think is right or wrong in the moment, we have a foundational, uh, a set of foundational principles that we come back Mm -hmm. to, which for us is the 12 steps in spirituality. Um, that we can yeah. always kind of come back to and, and help stabilize us. And I think that that is, I guess part of, it's a selfish question in that so often the alcoholic, the drug addict, they're the ones that are super easy to diagnose. They're the ones that are, that have the problem. They're the ones that need to get better. And so often the family has no clue in how much they're contributing to the disease and the illness, much less how are they codependent? Are they, um, are they enabling? Are they, you know, addicted to the same yeah. kind of fear well, and, and I chaos? Think that's a they big just part don't of have my relationship is my husband um, is not an addict. He's a very he's my complete opposite. And but mm-hmm. we both believe in evolving and bettering ourselves as people. And so I think that's huge. And we both agree that God is first. And having that foundation, like you said, it, that's yeah. just so key. It's the foundation of what we can come back to when the irritability, the anger, you know, that sort of thing comes in. And having people around us who speak truth into our lives, who right. speak our language, who know us well enough, right? Being vulnerable to have people who know our stuff and can help us. Yeah. Um I think you're, I think you're right. And I've talked a lot about that too, is trying to articulate the importance of people around you that don't have a dog in the fight, metaphorically speaking, they don't benefit whether you take uh, option A or option B and they're not going to co-sign your sickness or your defect or your BS. And a lot of times you have to have some sort of set of foundational principles that you and your crew study so we can know when each other is getting off the beam or we know that when I take something to someone that they're going to they're going to give me some answers based in what they know about me and and, uh, and what they know about my own fear insecurity and then rooted in some sort of spiritual guidance that we can both agree on. So it's not, yeah, your wife is wrong (laughs) or yeah, your husband is being an a-hole. Right. It's like, it's like, I got plenty of people that are just like that. That'll be like, yeah, you're justified. Screw you. In reality, uh, my ego's running rampant and I'm going to people that are just going to co-sign the whole stuff. And we've worked Um, hard to get to this place is that when these things come in, it's like we're both willing to take a look yeah. and we're both willing to change it. And we're both seeking to create peace in the home. Right. Yeah. 
So tell me about your uh, tell me about your Instagram experience. What how did you get into uh, what inspired you to create your uh, Instagram account, uh, Recovery Lifestyles? And you mentioned a couple, but and what kind of some things that you see in there? What are some trends that you see happening um, in, in that? platform yeah, well, around so the topics Instagram, in which you you uh for me it's kind of where my family is formed you know my new recovery family I still do get to one meeting a week but that's where the daily people are and it's so crazy how there are people from all over the world that I've never met and I feel like they're closer to me than some of the people you know in my life or some, even some family members um I think that there is a real support I yeah. also think that um what you put out there, you know, kind of like, like attracts like, and so how you show up, how you present yourself and how you put out there is the quality that you're going to get back. So, um, I've had, I've had nothing but positive experiences. Actually, that's a lie. I did have someone that was trying to sell drugs (laughs) on my posts, (laughs) but I mean, I didn't even interact with the person. I just kept deleting their comments and eventually they went away. (laughs) That, that's interesting. What? So, how did that come about? Um, what was your inspiration in starting as, that? As a life coach and a business coach for a while, that was kind of my coming out. Um, so to back up, when I was in hiding, I ran a very successful photography business and catered to families and um, anyway, family. So it was very how do I say this going from one extreme to the next, right? Like going from this crazy lifestyle to all of a sudden this like very um, right soft lifestyle. I don't know if that's even the right word, but all of a sudden, you know, and sure. I had done really yeah. well. And so I was able to take that experience of running a business and be able to coach other people. And I had taken some classes and courses and got certified. And so originally when I started Instagram, it was for that. And it was two two and a half years ago on my 13th sobriety birthday, I posted one of those time trackers saying I was 13 years sober. And the response was massive. I mean, the public response and the private response was huge. And I didn't realize it was kind of a, a, a God poking me saying, hey, you know, you're not helping anybody by teaching them how to run a business. You're still hiding, even though I thought I wasn't because I'd wrote, I'd wrote a chapter in a couple of books. Right. And around that time I was working right. for um, the network owner of voice America for the women's network. And she had been kind of probing me and she's like, you know, you should really get a podcast going. I'll set you up. Like you should really do this. And, you know, I was like, Oh, I don't know. And so when that post happened, that was my, that was my kind of awareness. I'm like, I'm going to do a podcast on recovery. That's, that's what I'm supposed to do. And that's how it started. Mm. Wow. You know, one of the things I was thinking of as you were telling me this story, and I'm thinking (laughs) of a successful businesswoman in hiding. um, And I just think that, you know, and you had shared earlier about the double life and the shame and the guilt and how many people are in that predicament. And yet when they come out, the exact opposite thing of what they think is going to happen happens. In other words, 99% of the crap I worry about never happens. Number one, 
Number two, if I'm worried about a professional backlash, most of the time it never happens. And even if it does, when the dust settles, I'll be attracting the type of client and people that want to work with someone that has a superpower of abstinence for long term, uh, uh, for a long term, uh, long period of time and a foundation of principles that they live by. Um, but also perpetuating this idea that someone with your background can't run a successful business. I mean, that that's it's it's all in perpetuating the stigma and 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 yet we're going on marches for you know break shatter the addiction and mental health stigma we're sitting on boards you know let's do something about mental health and homelessness and whatever and yet we don't we're we're terrified of sharing that thing that can help so many people and then when we do it's like, boom, I've got that experience. Wow, that would be great. And here comes a whole new business that comes out yeah. of Yeah, and, it, and you it's coming out coming of that out closet, of sometimes closet. weekly, sometimes monthly. I can easily compartmentalize my, myself and forget that I have an Instagram account that talks about all of these things and shares my stories and run into somebody who was like, you really helped me. Thank you. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's out there. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think maybe one thing I was thinking of, too, is 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 this idea that and I remember a sponsor saying one of the goals of my recovery, this was him sharing to me, is I want to be the same person Mm. in public as I am behind closed doors. And I think metaphorically speaking for me is if I can get more people that can be that person that has a solid foundation of recovery from mental health and addiction and anything else in every area, just purely to show number one, being themselves authentically all the time, but just showing and being out there that people that have the backgrounds we have are normal productive members of society and are valuable to our society. I feel like that is how we move the conversation forward because nobody even knows, we haven't even gotten to the challenges with insurance and hospital, and it's probably different in Canada, but the amount, I work in a mental health hospital, and the amount of people that come in on the wrong drug and their insurance company will not pay for it, and they come in and they are ready to detox and they send them home because they're on the wrong drug, or they discharge them early because they need a 14 days of mental health stabilization because they were suicidal and they're being discharged after seven because their insurance company will only cover three of those days. The amount of people that need so much more services and they are sent home without whatever and they are the families and themselves are they just eat it. They're not going to go blast someone or the hospital on Facebook like they would if they got a bad drink at Starbucks. Does that make sense? Like this, this mental health and suicide being suicidal and and addiction and other aspects is that when we, when they don't get the services, they're just, they just eat it. They hide. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. They don't even know that there's something messed up with that, you know? And I, I just think that that is the value that if you've come out on the other side, and then you are a good representation of of God and spirituality and recovery and mental health recovery, that it is your obligation to make sure that people know 
I used to be this way. Now I'm this way. If you know somebody that needs help, you can yeah. give them my and number anyway. Give I me think my it's really Apple cool. and help like, me check out. Part of out. my story is shifting into you know that space saying? where money used to be so important. And now I don't worry about money. I'm not trying to make money. That's not my goal anymore. It's to help people walk through yeah. what I've walked through so that they can come on the other side and they can show up in life the right. way they're meant to. Because I think it's a worth issue again. You know, we just don't feel worthy. And I've played right. everything you've spoken of. I've done, you know, and it just pains me to think that other people have to go through that, especially in this day and age. I think of the things I was doing at 20 years old and the access that the 20 year olds have today to do what I was doing on another level. It's scary. And yeah. they need someone like me standing there saying, okay, you know what? You're not worthless. You're not um, all of those things that you have allowed other people to think of you as. And let me take your hand. And if you stumble, I am not going to shame you. You're going to get up and I'm going to encourage you to get up and we're going to do it again. And it doesn't yeah. matter how many times it happens. We're going to get over here. And um, shifting into that space and that thinking is huge because most people do not think that way. They think that we should just all die. <laughs> No, there is. It's a yeah. large population. That thing's just get rid of them. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. And I, and I think that there's something important to point out is, you know, sometimes it can be implied that only people that have drug and alcohol addiction or extreme mental health issues are the only ones that feel inadequate and secure and have low self-worth and struggle. And that's just not the case. Um, but having the ability to even have help those people open up and get the help that they need. So at the, you know, so they can live the life of that they desire number one in the life of freedom without um, feeling like they need to isolate and shame, even if they don't have a mental health diagnosis or the where you have to go into and alcoholism. create this whole um, life that has nothing to do with your right. authentic self. <laughs> Just skip it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give me a, let's talk about the, uh, the sober curious movement. Um, there's a thing happening where people are becoming more and more, uh, sober curious. They are, um, they are younger people are con uh, considering and living life without as much alcohol as, as in the past, they wouldn't consider themselves alcoholics, but they they're big on, you know, cutting things back for health reasons, etc. And then there's also, you know, the camps, the camps that are, you know, you have to get it in 12 step or if you if you get sober in some other way that you must not have been a real alcoholic or drug addict. But but to, to you know, uh, th there are, there's arguments for now that we have technology, there's so many other ways we have so much more research from science. Um, that there are a bunch of different ways. Do you have any, uh, to, to get sober from drugs and alcohol, you got any experience in that kind of new, new movement, uh, that may yeah, not so involve as much 12 I step as, as has been in the past. The sober curious movement. Um, I, I have friends who are part of it and lead groups like that. I was like, what is this? This makes no sense. Sober curious. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I've, like I've had a, I've curious. had plenty of eye rolls I myself. Mean, that just isn't going to work for me. I'm just going to either, I'm going to die if I decide to be sober curious, right? 
But at the same time, how cool is it that we're coming into right. a new generation that wants to live better, be better, and they are realizing that alcohol is like a demon. It really is. And how much time they're wasting if they're yeah. partying yeah. or living that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I'm, again, I'm down the middle on that. I had my strong opinions in the beginning. And one of my good friends, she's like, yeah, I get it, what you're doing. But she's like, also think of us younger generation that want to change and want to be better. And I'm like, okay, all right. But, you know, you got to be careful with that because you don't want someone like me showing up and deciding they're sober curious because I'm going to trash your party. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And I think it all kind of comes out in the wash, to be honest, is I think that, um, you know, we, we, we are most people that suffer from the disease are high achievers and we usually snuff ourselves out, you know. And so I think that there's I think that there's value. I like that. And I like that any anytime someone is talking about, you know, abstinence or changing or cutting back, I think it's a, a good thing. I think that one thing that is i don't know a shame is not the right word but how much value a lot of these free programs like 12 step ha- offer to our healthcare system and to people that uh, they're they're also sometimes poo-pooed uh, by the healthcare community cuz they're not quote unquote research backed backed or someone went and they said we didn't you know, I didn't identify there, so I created a program and come get sober over here. And and equally from the twelve step side, there's plenty of people in twelve step that would that throw their nose up at those kind of or programs and organizations. But I would argue some people they won't take it seriously and yeah. they're, unless yeah. they're paying a boatload of money. I think that if it works yeah. for them, why not? I agree with you. You know, I mean, um, if it's working I, for I just, you and you're getting sober and you're achieving what you want out of it, then it's all for it. But if you're coming to me personally you're attracted to me you're probably going to want to do it the way i'm doing it do you know what i'm saying like yeah touche and i think too there's also some you because i think only nat it's only natural that the momentum that i'm having uh the momentum i'm having i've been more creative that i'm new to the hospital industry i've i I decided when I had a couple years sober that because I didn't want to be a counselor, that that means I wasn't ever going to be in the recovery industry. And I, I ended up, you know, uh, moving towns, uh, turning down a couple of jobs in my old industry and and trying to get a begging for a job in, in addiction. And I ended up in a mental health hospital for which I knew nothing about. I didn't even know there was a mental health side. And now my creativity is just, exploded i'm about 80 episodes in this podcast i'm writing like a fool i would have told you two years ago that i'm not creative i can't feel airtime and i'm not a writer and that's this is all i want to do so it's only natural to be able to have some sort of you know support group or support community kind of like you or or coach people etc um and it would be a and actually you know what now that i'm talking about it Part of the reason why I didn't think I could go into the recovery industry or didn't think there was other ways to make money is because I was so blinded by the volunteer aspect of service from 12 step. I thought that all service work or all help of others or everything should should be for free. 
even if that means I work hours on end for free, for free, for free, it should be for free because I'm grateful for service. But yeah. with technology and the way things are morphing, it's just not the same anymore. And I and I also think naturally, like what you were mentioning, the type of people that yeah, I, talk I mean to, they're not going to work with you unless they want what you have. So. Um, one thing I, I was curious about is, um, do you have any experience with medically assisted treatment or, um, uh, any kind of perspective on that with Suboxone and Methadone and some of these other, uh, treatment things you know, that, that a lot of the medical community are I pushing do, these I mean, days? I work with a young girl now who's on Subox, Suboxone. Is that what it is? I thought it was Suboxone. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I see well, whatever. I personally, for myself, am not interested yeah. in messing myself up and my brain up with more drugs. So I went a totally different way. Um, but if it works, I mean, yeah. And we also don't. We're all different. So maybe what works for somebody else may not be for me, but yeah. it's what they need. And so I don't have a judgment on it. I mean. I have in the yeah. past. <laughs> I, I, quite a few years ago, I, I was quite judgmental about it, but I see the good it's doing. Yeah. 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 I think that's an area in which I, I had a very similar evolution. And I think that's an area in which we can do better as a, support fellowship whichever fellowship that is is to again fan the flame of desire and help because how easily someone could be in and out of the fellowship two three four years on and off uh, a medically assisted treatment and only to get it year five and if us as a fellowship does not make them feel comfortable and does not fan the flame of desire and they never come back when they're ready to get off or when they've had enough of the finding ways and means to get more and, and not feeling lit up because they are on a substance and they're ready to decide, but we've run them off and made them feel um, well, and it's, not welcome. They're not going to come back to us. And, and then what? And so, um, yeah, it's a, I think it's a, as much as I don't love that the medical community is pushing that hard as hard as they are, I equally think that, you know, sometimes the 12 step communities can forget where they get their people from, which is from jails, institutions and hospitals and well, people and that are down. Why and out and do we have to make people feel bad about themselves for trying to get better? It really bothers that piece bothers me quite a bit. And what has helped me to come out through the other side of it, you know, with how I feel about that, you know, I can remember going to meetings in the early days and taking parking my car blocks away because I was afraid that somebody would drive by and notice my car and see me walking into one of those meetings. Like, so instead of getting better, right. instead of putting all my focus on getting better, yeah. I'm focusing on what if this person sees me? How are they going to judge me? What's going to happen? That's not helpful. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's just another example on why it's important for people to see others that are successful that do participate 
So when they do decide that they need help and they do decide to go, that they're not hanging their head in shame parking around the block because they know that there's a bunch of people out there that they look up to that, that have been down the road and, and almost maybe either they don't have to go down as far as they do. They don't hold off on going as long as they would have because their people are coming out. I mean, I like this. I like this thing that's kind of happened in our, uh, you know, in the celebrity world, uh, in pop culture, how more and more people are coming yeah, out. It's, it's not cool as, big of a, sober. A, as big of a thing. Um, it, yeah. Yeah. And I, and obviously just like with anything else, there are people that, that prescribe to a particular religion or 12 step or something else that are, you know, not great representation and re- great representations. And you can't, you can't throw away an entire group because there's a few people that are taking advantage. And I would also argue we need them too. We need the super strict people. We need the loosey goosey people. We need the bad examples. We need the good examples because who knows mm-hmm. who am I to say what you, who you need to learn from, even if it's someone that's a bad example. Um, well, Hey, uh, we're coming up to about uh, time. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to plug? I, I have to tell you before we get off, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I really admire and, and appreciate what you do and the impact that you've had. And, um, and I hope to continue to support you as we, um, you know, as we move on and, and keep in touch. Yeah, for but, sure. Uh, I don't know if I necessarily want to plug off, myself, plug anything, but now's, now's your definitely time. that if there's anybody out there listening that, you know, is struggling, just learn to be kind to yourself, you know, and if you have a hard time, and you're not sure what that means, reach out to me. My name Carmel Pelly is I guess I am plugging. But <laughs> yeah, so Girl, you better um, plug. Carmel got to find out how to get, get on, a hold of That's you. my website. It's on Instagram. It's on Facebook. I'm more than happy to chat with anybody who even if you're not struggling, right? Give me a, like, throw me a line. Give me I'd love to chat. And I'm always available. It is. So Your on Instagram, it's still Carmel Pelly. Recovery, recovery Lifestyles. Lifestyles. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. But my web, my website, oh. carmelpelly.com gotcha. has everything. Gotcha. Yeah. You're the bomb. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much. And I really appreciate it was, um, it was awesome. what thanks you do. For having and me. thanks for your service. And it was great uh, chatting with you. Hey, thanks for hanging around. And I hope you enjoyed that episode. One thing, I got a question. While you were listening to this podcast, was there someone you were thinking about that you think would benefit from hearing stories, recovery stories, personal growth stories like this? You know, that person that you're going, ooh, that's a good line. So-and-so needs to hear that. Well, why don't you take a screenshot and share it with them? Maybe you can send it to them in a text message, direct message, or maybe even post it on Facebook and let us know that you're listening and that you really enjoyed it. So, hey, share the podcast. If you think of someone that would benefit from hearing it, holler at them. Tell them about it. I love you. See you next week.